This is Giants Amongst Us. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. This is Giants Amongst Us, where you're going to hear real stories that are told by real people, people just like yourself. And if this is your first time tuning in, know that these stories, they come from a place of struggle, from hurts, abuse, suffering, addictions, the challenges that ones face, the adversity, the obstacles, all of the suffering, the trials and errors that makes life what it is. It's not always up and it's not always down. It isn't fair, it isn't easy. And whoever said it was supposed to be, they're lying. But that isn't the end all because these stories also show what it looks like to take responsibility for one's actions. It shows how changing attitude, environment, changing and making better decisions can create better opportunities and a better situation for yourself now and moving forward. It takes the work and it takes effort. And we think you're worth it. So if you're feeling hopeless right now, if you're feeling helpless, if you're in a dark spot right now, let these stories remind you that things can in fact get better. And you're not alone, and there is hope. Remember that. Today, Scott joins us, and he's got a story to tell. Scott was raised as a Jehovah's Witness. He talks about the abuse that went on, physical, sexual, emotional, and how that, that's pretty much standard within the organizations. He even talked about one of the members of the church. They actually hired a hitman to kill his wife. He had the fear of Armageddon and the world coming to an end, always playing in the back of his mind, the psychological trauma that can do to someone, a child especially. How can you live your life if you're constantly and always afraid and in fear that the world's gonna end? How is that going to impact your motivation to even wanna do anything with your life? One of the big issues Scott had was the shunning kids not being able to see parents, parents not seeing their grandkids, all because of the choices that someone makes. And this affected Scott personally for the decision that he made to finally leave the church. That cost him the relationship he had with his parents. That decision he made was 15 years ago. From those 15 years since he's left the church, 13 of those years, he's been completely shut off from the rest of his family. Imagine losing everyone you've ever known by their choice. Time has moved on and Scott has lived his life. He's been involved in a lot of projects. And one project in particular, he he just finished. As a matter of fact, it's available for streaming and, and you're gonna hear him talk about that in our conversation. But Witness Underground, He documented the lives of musicians, of artists that have escaped the cult. He's bringing awareness to one of the practices that this organization is notorious for. One practice that has affected him in a real way, and that's shunning. So you're going to hear Scott share with us how life was for him as a youngin, coming up as a Jehovah's Witness, 
what led to him finally separating himself from the church, the shunning that happened because of his decision, and of course, life after the church. There's going to be a lot of good nuggets, and I'm happy to share this conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Scott and his story. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. This is Giants Amongst Us, where we share in the unique human experience. And today, we've got a guest with us who took some time out of his day to uh, sit around and, and have a conversation and share a little bit about his story. So, Scott, thank you very much for taking time out of your day. You could have been doing anything, could have been anywhere, but we're going to spend a little time today and uh, hear some of um, your experience and your story. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Rich. Really appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited for the conversation. Yeah, I know you're a busy man. You've got a lot of things going on. And, um, you know, for starters, you don't have to get into specifics, whatever you feel comfortable uh, with sharing. But uh, you mind talking a little bit about where you come from and how it was for you growing up? Yeah, I come from northern Wisconsin in USA. And for the international audience, that's in the north at the frontera, the, the border of Canada and the center of the state of the Great Lakes. And my parents, um, when, when I was pretty young, got involved with a religious group that uh, are pretty fundamentalist and extreme in a number of ways. And they're also very well known. So we'll get into those details. Yeah. We spoke a little bit offline and you said that. Is it fair to say from a young age or right out of the womb, this um, organization and this body, uh, this governing body was a part of your life or or, over, or pretty much the overall theme of um, your belief structure and, and uh, how your, your family raised you? It's an interesting question. I think I'm a little bit of an exception to the standard for people that go through this kind of experience. Uh, my parents joined it when I was about five, between the ages of six and eight. Um, so okay. I was, I remember this religion doesn't, isn't famous for, so you can guess, um, not celebrating holidays or birthdays and preaching door to door. So you might guess which one that is. And my dad took it kind of seriously, but he was raising a bunch of kids and working full time. And my mom was working full time. So they were very busy parents and, um, kind of were like, the new people in church, so they didn't really have to do all the strict stuff. And so we were sort of, we had a lot of leniencies and my mom didn't really love it. So she would skip church. And that was like an interesting example to us. She didn't participate in the preaching. She didn't participate hmm. in the congregation activities. Um, but my dad tried to, but he wasn't really good at it. He's very introverted and like, he was very busy and exhausted probably. Um, and I think that they, you know, to give them the benefit of the doubt, joined it because they wanted to raise their kids in what they thought was a safe space. They liked the carrot on the stick of immortality that the religion promised. And also they also said in a practical sense, like they offered something of a social a benefit other families with young kids in a drug free um, environment where, you know, they care about honesty and truth and value um, a clean life and a clean body with like complete abstinence from any kind of substance usage besides alcohol. Mostly they're alcoholics, but mm. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was raised around it, but it sort of like had a dual perspective. Like a, my mom wasn't really good at it. My dad wasn't that good at it. My mom didn't really like it. So we kind of had a balance and we had all of our family that were in the town um, were not part of it. So all of our cousins and the friends we made at school, 
we weren't, it's not normal to make friends at school in that religion, but we were allowed to, and it was encouraged actually. So like I, I have a, I have a pretty fond, positive memory of my weird dual childhood of being part of being like a cult member in everyone else's eyes while also maintaining friendships from Wiccans and Catholics and Lutherans and Pentecostals and atheists. Like I had a little bit of everything in my life and that was nice. A little variety where most people that go through this have a very strict walled off life where they only get to interact with people from the same religion. I had a pretty good balance. I, I was under the impression that for the most part, they really kept a tight grasp on who you can and can't associate with just because, you know, that can cause maybe doubt, kill morale, or just raise some questions about what it is you're following exactly. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That's the standard isolationism from the rest of humanity creates an in-group, out-group dynamic that keeps you in a place where you don't really have any options to talk to someone about something aside from their leadership or other church members. And you can't really, you don't really have any place to go um, to for support if anything goes wrong in the in-group, in the church group. Mm-hmm. And plenty of things go wrong. My congregation is standard, but we had a guy who hired a hitman to kill his wife, who went to prison. We had a pedophile um, who everyone knew was a pedophile and went to prison for it. And I dated his daughter with my first girlfriend, but like he went to prison for it, but no one told my family because we were the new ones with kids and they didn't want to scare us away. So they they kept it a secret for like 35 years. Like we raised, (laughs) so like they went through the ringer, you know, like our, but our congregation isn't, isn't exceptional. Like that was normal stuff that happens in every congregation. Not maybe not the hit putting a hitman, but like child sex abuse is kind of standard. Physical abuse of spouses is pretty standard. Um, when you were growing, when you were of- a child, did you know people personally, like late, like say classmates or not classmates, but I guess you would call. Uh, uh, it would probably be more the peers within your peers, congregation. Um, did did you hear of or know of people that were? going through that type of thing, through the abuse, maybe from the elders or from uh, other people's parents? I learned of it more as a teenager that um, some women had gone through, young young women had been abused in some way, but they wanted they wanted to tell me, like they felt, they felt safe to tell me, probably because I was sort of like, I don't know, not, in maybe their eyes, like not a full member, because I was sort of like always open-minded and talked about my other experience, but they would tell me that they had had some abuse, sexual abuse, and like, but they didn't want me to tell anyone. They just wanted to get it off their chest or tell someone, but they, like, you can't really go to a therapist. You're discouraged from giving the religion a bad name. So if you were to tell someone like, oh, an elder raped me, or like I was raped by my father or my uncle or like another congregation member, like that would make the religion look bad. So like mm-hmm. you're told like, you don't want to do that because this is God's true people and you're trying to live forever. And if you did that, like, God will hate you and Jesus will murder you kind of threats um, is their standard thing. They don't maybe put it in those terms, but like that's fire and brimstone. Yeah. I mean, they're a doomsday cult. So like they're always telling you that it's the end of the world and you better be on the right side or you're going to get killed by Jesus. Yeah. That's what I came to learn uh, just recently. And because of, I, I mentioned, mentioned to you that from, and I think a lot of people probably feel the same way that aren't too familiar with the doctrine, with, with the Jehovah's Witness organization. But I mean, I, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that this is a cult that we're talking about here. That's how I describe it. Right. And a lot of other people describe it that way. It's, they don't like that term, of course. It's a, it has a pretty loaded language. I think they check off a lot but of boxes. They check off a lot of boxes. One of the ways to determine a high control group 
that you can also label as a cult is um, Stephen Hassan is a cult expert. He got out of the Moonies. Uh, he wrote a book that has a concept called the bite model. And it's like 20, I don't remember how many things there are, but like Jehovah's Witnesses check almost every single box on the list, apart from having like a single savior. They used to have a single savior. And then it was a series of those people. And then eventually they have now a group that are running it. But they also consider themselves the body of elders, mm -hmm. or the, the governing body that lead the world headquarters in New York, um, that they are going to tr transform into powerful spirit beings and rule over the low class, the earth class of humans that will, that might survive the end of the world into eternity as like angels in heaven with God. So they're basically like the only saviors. You can only find God through them. So it's a similar thing, but there's just more of them instead of one. And then the one thing that really makes it a cult wow. for me and why I made a movie about it, which I'm sure we'll talk about it. Um, I made a movie called Witness Underground, but it just, it describes in detail, it demonstrates shunning, which is the practice of being cut off from family, community, friends, lovers, even your own spouse and children in extreme to the end of life. Like they will never talk to you again out of fear of dying by the hands of Jesus for talking to you. We just, we demonstrate that in the movie and this, it's a not, there's no dignified way to leave that happens whether you smoke a cigarette one time and you're not sorry about it enough, or if you just tell people that you've committed a thought crime, if, if it comes known that you don't believe something that they they require you to believe, it could be as simple as like, well, I think there's something to this whole evolution thing. Like, I think that's how nature works. That's enough for you to never be able to talk to your family again for the rest of your life. Just by saying that you don't believe, mm -hmm. believe, the, what they tell you is true. Like God poofed everything into existence to quote them. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, That's a new way yeah. to look at, look at life and the creation of it. You know, um, because Christianity, well, I, I, I remember hearing sometimes that they would call themselves Christians, like uh, back when I was younger and I would run, uh, run into them. But uh, most Christians believe like through forgiveness, you can get right with God. Now, how is it with Jehovah's Witness? Because you were you were mentioning if you smoke a cigarette or anything, you know, the smallest of things, you can put yourself on the outside. Now, if the world were to end, you probably wouldn't make it to where the grass is going to be greener on the other side, so to speak. But how is someone able to get right with it? Are you having to confess your sins like, say, a Catholic would? Or do you speak with God uh, personally? Is it, it a relationship in that sense? Or how does that work out? I think you made a great point in differentiating different religions. So Christianity in general, the Protestant religions, non-Catholics, non would generally say that your forgiveness is based on your relationship with God. The grace Jesus, of God, your, right? Your heart. Yeah. It doesn't have, doesn't require other humans. Where Catholics, you kind of need this leader, your local priest or the Pope to say something special to forgive you. Like that person has the power in that religion. And Jehovah's Witnesses have a similar structure. You have to, your forgiveness is, they, they'll say both things basically, depends on what the context is and who they're talking to. Um, they, they have three different audiences. They have members, active members. They have people they want to become new members, it's like regular humans. And then they have, um, it's like they're knocking on the door, they're telling their own people. And then what they say in private meetings with people is like three different groups, but they'll say okay. that the ones in the know it's, it's true that you, this is all based on your relationship with God, but they need to demonstrate, they need you to demonstrate it to the elder body that you are, you're repentant of your sins. And to do that, they're going to, in some cases, 
they have different levels. Basically, they can say like, well, too many people know about this problem, so we have to get rid of you. So they'll kick you out of the religion. But there's a path back, but it's it's in complete silence and solitude. Like no one's allowed to talk to you or even look at you. Um, no one's allowed to eat with you. Your own family will often kick you out of the house. Often people in that religion. So you're ostracized. You're totally ostracized. Completely. With the soonest capable of coming back is attending every single church event, writing multiple letters to the elders, groveling basically, begging them to let you back in because you miss your family, but also because you really want to get right with God. And then they might let you in, but they probably won't. The minimum is six months, um, the minimum sentence. Mm. And um, usually it takes people about a year and or longer. Some people leave for years, then it's like another six months to one year process to start. You just start again by attending the first time and they mark the calendar like okay they started coming to church at this time they would order to mark regular attendance they better show up on time and they better write their letters every few months begging um so that's like one way that they would handle it so it's kind of based on them if you're if you're in the good graces of god on the leaders of your local so ultimately it's not that you have you know some some would say like jesus came down he died for us and through the forgiveness and through you accepting your your sins and asking for forgiveness you're washed in you and you can start but with the jehovah's witness it seems like you have to make amends with the governing body yeah and that's that's kind of like the middle you know the, the bridge to get to get a good standings with jehovah once again Right. And that's for like an individual member who's done something wrong or a victim, you know, a, a sinner who's had a thought crime. They've thought the wrong thing or believed the wrong thing. They can get kicked out and be treated this way. Um, or if you've, you know, slept with someone, if you had, if you had sexual relationships, not in a marriage, that would be a huge, that's a huge one. They're, they're obsessed with sex. Like, but then if you're talking to on, on the other side of the coin, the general public, they they tell everyone when they knock on their door, like, oh yeah, God will forgive you. Come join us. We want you to come in and, and like be a part of God's true people. And to the point that they go to prisons because there's a lot of people there with no place to go. Oh, they have ministry in prisons also. They go, they go hard on the prisons and letter writing. They go there and talk to them and they target pedophiles. And um, there's a lot of pedophiles coming out of prison and going into Jehovah's Witnesses, which believe it or not, causes problems. <laughs> oh, wow. Who would have thought? No one else has given them a break. So Jefferson says yeah. they should bring them in for some reason. Maybe because they designed a religion that protects them and they want more of them. I don't know why they would do that, but they made a special. They, mm -hmm. make, a, they make a thing about that. So through like coming coming up and in, in all through school, how was this? Was this a big influence in your life? Or like you said, you were kind of, uh, you you were one foot in, one foot out, not all the way sold on, on um, the, the belief in doctrines that, that you yeah. had? It was an interesting world to navigate. I mean, like on, on one level, I feel like even though, I mean, I was honest with everybody as much as I could be with my school friends, with my church community, like, oh, I don't really know if I believe that. And then they would try to convince me, but like they always saw me as someone who wasn't really one of them in their religion. But then my school friends are like, yeah, Scott's cool, but he won't come to any of our important parties like holidays or birthdays because that, that's off limits to that religion. So I'm like, I can't, I wasn't doing those things. I wasn't breaking those rules. And for them, it's like, those were important days where all the other friends were there except for Scott. So like Scott's a part of some weird cult that doesn't allow him to do very specific, strange things. So for them, I wasn't like all, all I wasn't really one mm -hmm. of them in a sense as well. Like I didn't feel like I fully belonged to the friend groups I was in because I was, I was different and I was acting different. 
to the point that, I mean, even from a very young age, my parents were like, you can't, you can't say anything good about being a part of USA. You can't say the Pledge of Allegiance. You definitely can't sing the national anthem. So every day in school, every single day through primary school, mm-hmm. um, I had to leave the room and it was made a big deal out of by every single teacher. Like, okay, Scott, all religious people, you know, who can't do this need to leave the room. And it'd be just me and like leave the room and, and like be like self-isolating from normal society or like anytime there's a holiday party, like mm-hmm. we're making cupcakes for Easter, we're going to paint eggs. Scott, you need to leave the room and like go draw a picture of something else or something or Christmas songs in the holidays. Like, Scott, you can't sing. And like, it would be made a big deal out of, and it's like, I don't want to choose this. My parents are making me do it, you know? Mm-hmm. And the teachers aren't being kind about it. They're just like, get out, you weirdo. You know, like they could. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a, it's, and the religion does that, like you said at the beginning, to ostracize you or like isolate you and make you different. And they, there's this term called um, the persecution complex. The religion wants you to think that you're being singled out. So they force you mm. to single yourself out. And that when you go talk to your other church member, community about what happened something that was difficult for you they're like oh it's a great example i also did that and you're like now you're like both like like a war veterans like say like oh yeah we both went through this difficult yeah. thing together but like it's a camaraderie that you build yeah but it's fully artificial but the whole idea is to create something similar like oh we're being oppressed like you're not being oppressed you're making a spectacle and you're creating a superiority complex in this child by like oh i'm better than you i won't i'm not going to do that song I'm, this are, these are pagan holidays. I'm not a part of that. My true God mm-hmm. won't allow me to be a part of that terrible thing that you guys all do over there. You know, like that's a strange way to to be fr- like frame everything when you're a little kid. That's a great point to have it to have it to where eventually it's going to look like you see what I mean. They're against you, and we're the ones that yeah. understand each other, and we're the ones that need each other, and we're the ones that need to build this together because everyone else is against us well like a victim into a victimhood mentality in a way yeah exactly out of uh i don't know maybe you could probably pick a one one of many things but what was it about it exactly that was a turnoff or to where you started to um kind of see things from a different lens so there's one very specific thing um it's i mean it could be a long story but i'll just tell the topic and it's what my film is about, Witness Underground is about, is about shunning. And I mentioned it already, but it's one thing for them to talk about it or to hear stories of people in like a nearby congregation or a place far away with people you don't know or have a personal relationship with. Like, oh yeah, you can't talk to that person. Or like they got kicked out. Like, ooh, what did they do? You know, everyone gossips about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they announce what the reason was and sometimes they keep it a secret. But everyone knows because no one can keep it a secret. <laughs> and um it's a very closed society. So like they, they really only know each other and everyone talks about it. Um, and the, the issue is mm-hmm. shunning. So like my cousin did something that was against the rules and he got kicked out of the religion and it was like, Oh, like I grew up. So I did have family in the religion and it was, it's like my mom's cousins, kids also joined the religion. Um, or, so I grew up around them and, um, okay. Yeah, they he did something, so we had to cut him off, or like we were told, oh, you're not really supposed to talk to him anymore. Well, really, like that's hard because he's at everything. And did you have a good relationship with them up until then? Yeah, yeah, we were all pretty close. I mean, they were like another set of brothers. There was like four of them, and there's okay. three three of us guys. So like we all, and there was like one of one one for each person. Basically, my older brother had the older cousin, the younger next one was mine. I'm the second. And just like that, 
There's Forget a couple him. more younger ones and I had a little brother. Yeah. just like no more talking to that guy. But then I saw an example of like, he came to visit my dad. And so, um, my dad talked to him at our house and only him, right? He, he was, he wanted to talk to my dad about something. Maybe it was family or business, but my dad mm -hmm. spent a good, you know, hour hanging out with him. And I was like, that's an interesting example. Here's my dad, the only person in my family who actually understands what's going on in this religion and takes it seriously. Like we're all a bunch of kids, teenagers to have this, him giving the example of, of treating someone with kindness and breaking yeah. the barrier. I thought that was interesting, but also like I felt terrible about cutting him off. But having seen that example, I had other friends later on that got cut off um, that, that were supposed to be, we're supposed to cut them off and I didn't do it. Like I would, I wouldn't go out of my way to talk to them, but I also, if they called me, I would answer the phone. Like, you're not allowed to do that. You're not supposed to do that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and they're just like, you know, they're reeling from losing every single person they know in their life and they believe it. So it's not like you get kicked out and then you're like, Oh, I guess I'm just like not one of them anymore. Bye. And you go make new friends. Most people that get kicked out are like, I really screwed up big time this, this time. now I have to like double down. And so they, they're not just like isolated by the community. They're self isolating too. They're still not going and making normal friends. They're trying to get back into the community. So they're living completely alone and completely in silence without any community or friends outside. Wow. There's like acronyms for physically and mentally. And that's an active member. We call it PME. And then PMO is physically in mentally mm -hmm. out. That's someone who's like woken up while still a member. And they're trying to keep their family together by pretending to be a believer. And then there's the, the tragic thing I just mentioned, which is like, okay, you're physically out, but you're mentally in where you like, you're not a part of the community, but you believe it all still. And you, you act accordingly and you're totally controlled and you're self-policing um, while, while out. And it could, some people do this for years, decades even, where they still believe it's all true and they don't develop relationships on the outside. And there's like living in isolation and then like living with guilt and mind, you know, controlled that way. Emotions like it's in a form of emotional abuse. And that's the big thing that really bothered me inside. And then when I left, I couldn't believe my family would, would do it because they were such bad members. Like they just didn't and bad members is a bit negative, but basically they weren't good at it. They weren't taking it seriously. They skipped church all the time. They didn't really do the normal stuff on the bottom level. Like there's a big hierarchy, many, many levels that you can achieve or like try to rise up in the church. And they, none of my family were doing any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So when I finally was like, Hey, I don't really believe any of this. And I think, I think we were all being deceived and like, there's some really negative things going on in this church. Like they put up with that kind of conversation. We had real conversations about what's going on in the religion from my perspective as someone who doesn't believe it for like two years. So finally when I got out, they, they, I was so, I was actually surprised that they shunned me, but it came out of nowhere. Like they all decided together without talking to me that they were going to delete me on all social media and never respond to me and make a big deal. If I ever contacted them, that they will never talk to me again. Are you speaking about now? This is your immediate family, your mother, your yeah. father. That's my immediate family. Yeah. Whoa. And so, I, I mean, I left 15 years ago and so there's been about 13 years of a complete shutoff. Like I haven't talked to, the only time I've talked to them has been if I've gone to their house and confronted them. But I'm, I mean, I'm not going there to be like, your religion's wrong. Like, I'm mm -hmm. like, Hey, how are you? <laughs> it's been a long time. They're like, I'm not allowed to talk to you because the Bible says you can't have a food or a drink with someone who doesn't believe in God. And I'm like, wow. Um, Yo, like I just drove 47 hours or like in, I was living, I'm, this is my eighth year living abroad. So like in some cases I was living in Vietnam and I'm like, you know, I flew across the entire planet 
and I drove across a continent to see you, <laughs> can you like hang out with me for like at least a few minutes and like say anything about your life? Like what's going on? That's How are you? a strong and they're hold. Like, no, no, this is like a, you're, you're like the, the arm of Satan. You're the antichrist. You're not allowed to be on our property. Go away. Like mom, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, like that's not what's happening. I didn't come here to talk about your religion. I came here to say hi to you. I mean, my dad's the strongest one about it. And then later on, my like little sisters like went, they got married, they married into it. So like now they're like super deep in with like guys who are trying to be elders or maybe they are elders at this point, who knows? But like, so they're like afraid of losing everything, including their spouse, if they were to think for themselves. How, how old were you exactly when you finally separated yourself completely from the governing body and all that uh, they stand for? So there was two things. Completely is 27 years old. I'm 40. I'm almost 43. Um, so mm -hmm. it's been a while. And um, for, but I left at, I left at 18, 19 after reading some literature about shunning. A bunch, a bunch of people after having their families torn apart by this religion, like in members cutting people off, children being taken, um, people that are cut off from their own, you know, parents and never, they've never seen their grandkids and, uh, grandkids being cut off, like almost terrible, tragic family separation stories from shunning. So I, I kind of, I didn't go to church for like half a year. And then my dad kind of like sucked me back into it in a really like weirdly abusive, controlled way. And um, I kind of mm -hmm. took, I was like, yeah, but I'm not going to do this and this and that. I made my own like vetoed list. Like this religion's ridiculous on these 17 levels. And I don't agree. And he's like, yeah, then none of that matters. I'm like, I mean, they say it all matters, but uh, okay, I'm not going to, I'm going to pretend that it doesn't matter and live like that. So I, I went back to mm -hmm. it to keep the family stuff. And I believed some of it, you know, like I was like hopeful that I would gain immortality and that I would survive the end of the world. But I wasn't so sure about the end of the world at that point at 19. And here we are, 2023. <laughs> yeah. The world's still spinning. Right. I mean, by my calculations, when I was living in fear of the end of the world, it should have been 1996. They predicted the last time they predicted an actual date was um, 1975. They hinted strongly at a date of 2012 because of the Mayan calendar, but there was like kept hush yeah. hush. And there was something else about 2014 that I saw. And then before when the pandemic started, they all went insane. I would have thought of 99. Yeah, right. Maybe also Y2K. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I know you mentioned, you mentioned a bit already about what you're involved with with the underground witness uh talk, talk a, a little bit about that i know you you're doing a, a documentary or you've already done a documentary but uh, also the the work that you've been involved with since you left the uh, organization um, can you you mind sharing some of that yeah so i i did like a i call it the dagobah experience the dagobah period of time where i got out of the religion i was like i'm not talking to anyone about that past i want to not i want to not be a cult member and i also want to not be a former cult member because i'm sick of being treated as a different kind of human being i've been treated differently by right community. so i went through this period of like i'm not telling anybody and then i um, i moved to vietnam like the farthest place away from society and well, i didn't have community or family so i was like well what am i doing here hoping that a relationship will exist someday. I could be anywhere. Might as well go to the farthest place on the planet away from all of this insanity. And I moved to a communist country that's atheist, essentially. Um, and I was like, why does communism feel so good? Oh, because I grew up in basically mm -hmm. a community that is run like communists. Everyone's watching. Everyone's trying to turn you in. Very Orwellian. The end of the world is coming. There's always threats and dangers. Mm. Not Maybe not like Marxism, but like 
actual communism that we've experienced for a century. Um, so it was, I, I was like, mm-hmm. this feels really comfortable. This is like what everything the Jehovah's Witnesses ever talked about. <laughs> like a, wow. I'm living it here. It's cool. I like it. And there's some good things. <laughs> I mean, I lived with a lot of privilege over there as well because I had access to money and money goes a long way there. And I had, a, there's a huge international community there. So I was really enjoying that. Um, my Dagobah period. Yeah. Yeah. And then after being out for about five years, I, I dove back into filmmaking when I was living over there and I spent five years in Vietnam and I was really dedicated to documentary and music work that I was doing there filming and making music videos and um, doing documentaries on things that I thought, well, things I could get paid for, but also things that were important. And I love documentary my whole life. Okay. And I was like, I think I, I think I'm gaining the skills that someday soon I'll be able to tell this crazy story I went through. I have no idea how I'll do that. I've never done a big project that exposes something or a story, big, deep story, but I think I could Expose. do it. Cause, yeah. Cause I've got the skills for audio. I've got the skills for camera. My back, I went to school for photography while I was a witness. So I have like the camera visual skills. Mm, okay. And I was learning storytelling skills when I was there and how powerful music is in storytelling to capture an emotion. And so I was like, I think I can, I think I should do a documentary. That's just fun. And then I want to tell something deeper. So I started doing interviews with people I was meeting. And what was crazy to me is I kind of wanted to escape this story. That's why I call it the Dagobah period. And Dagobah, if I, I didn't mention this, but that's where Yoda went at, when the Jedis are being hunted. He went to the swamp planet in Star Wars. Mm, okay. And okay, so got Luke it. Right, Skywalker right. finds him there and, and he gets trained by Yoda in the swamp planet. <clears throat> Dagobah. <laughs> and so I, I call Vietnam like my Dagobah <laughs> period. <laughs> I went there and went. I got to train to be like a activist <laughs> you pretty um, much went alone right you just took a shot and went overseas and um not with a friend not with a soul yeah, but yourself exactly i mean i kind of had an in with someone to teach english which is something i've always kind of wanted to do it's just like just as an excuse to give it give the life experience okay. of doing it live abroad and have a job but yeah i went i went alone and i made a life there and it was awesome i loved it i have a lot of friends there still wow yeah that's that's cool. So after you're not wanting anything to do with it, not wanting to talk about it, there there was a time where you um, figured that maybe I can start putting this crazy story together and, yeah. and uh, shedding some light on it. I probably would have like just lived with that traumatic thing in my inside and never said anything about it. But something started happening living there. I dated a woman who we never talked about that topic. And then like after oh, like a year after we broke up, she got in touch with me and she's like, Hey, something happened. Like my mom died and I want to talk to you about it. And I was like, Oh, what happened? She's like, Oh, just, it's just like a really hard thing. And I think you'd understand maybe the only one. And I don't know why, but I want to talk to you. She's like, so I grew up in this weird religion. And I was like, really? We never talked about that. Which one? She's like, Jehovah's Witnesses. And I was like, you're joking. Me too. She's like, fuck you. Like, that's crazy. Mm. What? <laughs> how is, how do we never talk about that? <laughs> and I was like that. Okay. So then we had a whole catch up and it was awesome. And you know, she's doing great. She's now married and um, they seem really happy, but then like, what are the chances of that? <laughs> right. And at that time I was living with a bunch of people. Cause it's like a lot of co-living spaces, like four people in a big house. Everyone has their own room. That's kind of the standard thing for an international community there. Of course you can rent your own space, but just, it's a cheap, low cost thing. And I was, I love living in community and I'd live, at that point, like a hundred people, um, in, with, in terms of like roommates throughout my life. And so I, I was loving it and I, I still love that kind of thing, but I was living with this, um, with this woman in the house and she hurt herself on a motorcycle accident. So she was like living in the living room cause there was stairs and she didn't want to climb up. So we were like hanging out a lot, a lot more than we had been. And then after like two months of this, like every day, like watching a movie and like chatting and whatever, having a drink sitting, she's like sitting with her hurt leg. She's told me that her, like her sister's coming to town and she had this like whole 
issue and she was worried about like she had a conversation with her mom and it was this whole thing from london and i was like what's going on she's like oh yeah my mom's in this weird religion and i was like what's going on what religion she said jehovah's witnesses i was like how is this happening how are like everyone there's someone in my life at all times who's an ex-jehovah's witness but i also like really deeply respected them and i was like what's the deal with ex-witnesses and living really interesting lives and doing really really cool things with their lives like on at least how from my perspective Mm -hmm. like similar things to me where I was like living it. I was like doing everything I loved. I was like exploring documentary and film and music. And I made a, I made a music documentary when I was there and I was working on tons of music videos and having the time of my life in a lifestyle that I really, I chose and I really enjoyed. And I kept meeting people that had the same background as me who are also doing stuff like that. And I was like, okay, I think I'm gonna need to lean into this because I kind of want to tell this crazy story about shunning and expose this religion for the, the evils of shunning and the emotional abuse that they of all the different problems, that was the one that affected me. We already talked about child sex abuse. There's other there's other major issues that are things that should be illegal or are illegal in many countries right. um, going on in that religion. But this one affected me in a deep way. Like I haven't talked to my family and siblings for years, including my grandparents. And there's a nephew and I want to, you know, all this disconnection that's so unhealthy and broken family, um, which ha- we had a very healthy relationship up until that moment. And like, I love my family. Um, so I was really missing it and wanting to talk about how dangerous and this religion is for creating that situation and perpetuating it on purpose. Like they force them to do this. I almost, I like, I see my family as like victims more than me. Like we're all victims of this thing, but like they have to choose to do that every single day and live with the mm-hmm. cognitive dissonance every day of cutting someone off and lying to themselves. Like there's a lot I can say, but there's like character assassination. They're telling, they tell crazy lies about me to people, to themselves, to each other about me. And it, that get, it comes to me through other people. And I'm like, I can't believe they would say that. Like none of that's even, that's the exact opposite of reality. Why would they bring mm-hmm. that? I wonder if it's like a way to almost, you know, it, it almost makes it a little easier to accept the fact that you've separated yourself from your own blood or your own son. Exactly. Yeah. You, I think you nailed it perfectly. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I forget what your original question was, but um it, it was having to do with uh yeah so you 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 came to a point with not wanting to speak anything of the religion to where you started to lean into putting everything together yeah to uh, right. kind of shed some light on what's going yeah. on and more and specifically the shunning that's right and, and it came from pe- meeting people out in the world out doing the, what they love and randomly being friends with them when they were in the same living their life, me, like not talking about that past. Cause it's not, it's not something they want to talk about or be associated with. They want to distance themselves from it. And I was like, yeah, me too. But like, that's a crazy thing to have in common. Uh, no one knows what that's like. Wow. The camaraderie that you have right there yeah. from that. And I was like, do you want to do an interview? And they were like, hell yeah, why not? Let's do it. And I started having these incredible interviews, but I didn't really know how to tell the story. And everyone's story is so different. And everyone's story, I mean, this is also an international thing, right? So Mm -hmm. many, many cultures represented hundreds of different like countries and cultures. And everyone has a completely different experience and a different problem and a different way that their family's handling it and a different way that their congregation's handling it. So like, where do you start? Do you start with like, well, I was born (laughs) in it or like there was a child sex abuse problem or there was, you know, someone in my family died and this is what happened. Or, or like, do you go to the, like when you're trying to do an interview or like make a movie, like, is it the moment that you leave? Like, what was that moment? Is it, what, is it the waking up moment? Is it, what was the, mm-hmm. the final straw that broke the camel's back moment for you? Or is it the stuff that happens after? And I was far more interested in like 
I was fascinated by people who've left and what they did with their life, life after. afterwards. So that's my whole project is called XJW coming out on YouTube. Okay. So really dive into the, what happens after, but on, on, and one level it's sort of like, yeah. And then I left religion and then I became a carpenter. And so it's like, okay, well let's show carpentry then. And we are telling your story of this like crazy thing that we have in common and we're showing people doing carpentry, which isn't that exciting. You know, I I'm, I'm a fan. Sure. Like mm-hmm. why not? It, it can create something visual, but it's not like, whoa, this person did something incredible with their lives. They did something very, very normal and actually practical and very useful mm-hmm. <laughs> with their lives. <laughs> For me, that's interesting, but I don't know that that really captivates like the average human being. Like I'm going to watch a guy doing carpentry while he tells me a story isn't. Mm-hmm. So maybe it didn't like work for some stories, but other stories, but I mean, I just wanted to tell reality, right? Like it's documentary. So I have no idea. Exactly. Right. Everybody's path is different. Not everyone is going to be a, a, not everyone is a rock star. There's some people, they, they find their peace, their love and their joy in, in building or laying a foundation to some kind of groundwork or whatever. So, but I love that you just brought up rock stars because that's what my movie's about. So what I did find, and this is the exciting thing is that our film follows five people that were in a community of like three to 500 kids over a period of 20 years inside the religion who are making art and music. Uh And so it's like you get an insider's view of the religion through the eyes of artists, through their archival movies, archival music videos and archival albums. They have like 30 produced albums that they released in the religion. Oh, wow. So that's like the, okay, what is this religion from the inside, from the eyes and years of filmmakers and musicians in the religion, which mm-hmm. is very unprecedented. It's not like a normal thing. It did happen in a number of countries, but not everywhere. Are they based everywhere or specifically in the US? This was one specific city and like it expanded to multiple states around in my home area. Okay. And so I, I actually knew these people when I was in the religion because I had my own band in my high school, like my normal friends. And I was like, oh, there's other witnesses who are doing cool music. Like I didn't know that there was cool witnesses. Mm-hmm. I thought they were all just boring Jesus people who, who do weird things. Like like I'm, my parents are trying to be a part of this thing and I'm trying to like navigate it because I don't know, like my parents joined it, not me. I'm just is like, this is my weekly reality that I kind of am coerced to do all this stuff I don't want to do, whether I believe it or not. What, what do you think about like, say, for instance, people that are involved in, in the, let's just cut, I mean, I'm, I'm going to write that also because I, I do think they check a lot of boxes, but this cult people that are involved in it to this day and involved with it when you were um, still part of that governing body and and, um, attending, you know, the kingdom halls and things like that. But do you think that sucks the creativity? Like there's no room to be creative. There's no, there's no motivation to be creative and express yourself. Uh, How does, how do you feel about that? Because I know you're talking about the life afterwards, but like, say for instance, while you're involved mm. with it, it does, is there any room for creativity or that that's not a thing? It's a great question. And it's something that kind of shocks people that first of all, that it would be squashed, but it's accepted if you're doing it on your own in that religion. And I'm sure that that would be probably true for most groups. Cause like, what can they control about what you do in your, you know, alone in your bedroom? But they sort of do time management. So like, well, you should be spending your time going door to door preaching or like mm-hmm. studying more of the religion, reading more of their literature. Like you're inundated with stuff to read and study and prepare for. And they give you, mm. yeah, they don't want you thinking about other stuff. They want you thinking only about their thing. And, and so on that level, they don't really want, there's no, they don't, they definitely don't want you to pursue a career in art. Right. And then if sense. you think about comparing it to like any other authoritarian regime, the art's the first thing to go. And the government owns 
the propaganda and the control the narrative. Yeah. Um, so like for, for exa- a good true. example of a, a fiction would be V for Vendetta, the graphic novel and the movie. The main character has like a deposit, a repository, like a secret layer of art that he's collected mm-hmm. because art has been destroyed or captured by the government. And then they put, you know, screens everywhere and they try to um, control the way you think and what you think about. And, and that ha- a lot of dystopian films and books do that. And, and that's because we have examples of that happening in reality. Even like in North Korea, the son of the leader, like 40 years ago, he became like the department of film and media head. And then they, they made a bunch mm-hmm. of films that were like the laughing stock of the planet. So like just pure propaganda with bad acting and bad writing. But then like he hired, they, they kidnapped a director from South Korea and then they kidnapped two star actors and they kept them in prison for like 10 years, five, 10 years or something. And then they finally, they broke them mentally and they got them to act and write. And then they started making films that were like high quality that are like getting recognized on the international scene. This is what authoritarian regimes do. Like they don't want you making your own stuff. They are the ones that are making the songs. They are the ones that are making the videos. Mm. Now this religion, Jehovah's Witnesses, mm-hmm. like in the nine throughout the last century, they were railing against TV evangelists, televangelists. Exactly. It's like a terrible thing for society and like how awful they are. And now they are that. They have nine leaders and they all have a TV show. And they look, they put, portray themselves as like, I don't even know what to call it. Like they're really, really boring, <laughs> but they portray themselves as like God's true people. And they're like the only ministers that have a voice. And they actually, when you're Jehovah's Witnesses last century, there was a school to like learn how to become a good public speaker. And now they, they canceled it a couple of years ago and they don't even have like public sermons anymore by a local minister. They like have a TV and you like watch the TV of the leaders giving a public sermon. Like, mm-hmm. What's what is that? Now you're like a weird TV televangelist cult. And they have like a, they were like for over the pandemic, they're like a zoom cult. Like you had to dress up to go to your zoom meeting and you had to have your camera on or else. Like I heard so many funny stories about how they were trying to keep control of people during that time. (laughs) (laughs) But you were able to, cause you, you mentioned that you took up photography while you were still a, a considered a Jehovah's yeah. Witness? I, well, actually, my grandmother, who, like, my, it's my grandparents who joined the religion, and they convinced my dad to take it seriously and, like, check it out and start studying with them. And for years, my dad was the only one doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, they brought us all in. But my grandma gave me my first Kodak 110, a little plastic camera. I was, like, a 12-year-old, like a birth, almost like a birthday gift, but it wasn't a birthday. And then my mom was really big into shooting all the time, just family photos, basically. But she had a nice camera. And then I had access to that stuff and like an example. And my mom was, you know, not really in, in. So she was like, if you're going to go to college, which witnesses aren't really allowed to, if you're going to go to college, it better be for art. You better not go for something boring like business. And I was like, mom, I want to be an entrepreneur. She's like, you go to school for art. Or you're not going to school. <laughs> like, um, okay. <laughs> so I had that in the back of my mind, but I also really love the arts. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I always love photography. I had a nice um, AE1 with a bunch of lenses. Okay. I was always shooting portraits for my friends and stuff through high school. I was like, there's all these high school photos. And I like, I have like an, a legit film camera on my neck. And back then that was the only way to take a photo is with like a nice right. film camera yeah. or like a, you know, throwaway point and shoot. But like, if you want to take a nice photo, you kind of need to have a nice camera. And so like, I was this guy with this huge, like four pound camera on my neck all the time. And I loved it. You're the go-to it. man. Now it's a bit weird. Cause like I went to school for it. And the, the year I got out of college for photography, everyone had a smart camera, a smartphone. And I was like, no, 
no, everyone can do the magic that I just <laughs> learned how to do. I spent like years of my life perf- learning how to do the magical thing of photography. Maybe you have still the, the composition. <laughs> There's still a composition in the craft to exclude and include what you want in the frame to make it put to portray what you want it to portray. Yeah, absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. And there's still professional photographers out there. Like they do a valuable, valuable work. Yeah, that's true. How was your your work received from people? Did, did you get any pushback once you started to, you know, ca- kind of uh, link up with people who were once involved but not involved anymore, and they started to speak and share their story? Um, were you? Did you get any pushback? Pushback, or how was it received overall? My XW coming out series or the documentary or both? Yes. Um, so the documentary is still kind of in its early release phase. We just secured some money from a Kickstarter to release it on streaming services, which is pretty cool. But it's been kind of done for about two and a half years. So it's like, how do you do distribution? Um, but so, you know, a few thousand people have seen the movie. I've gotten a lot of re- re- writing of reviews and like little like, hey, I watched your film. This is how I felt about it. Um, type messages and most of them are mm-hmm. like whoa like this is not only the a great documentary it's I think this is my favorite documentary i've ever seen in my life like i've never seen myself on camera before i've never seen my story on tv before like this feels incredible like i just watched it three times and i cried at a different scene every time like mm. okay so i made yeah. something that triggers people but it also makes them feel seen which is special so most of it's been that which has been amazing very very validating that i told a story that people are excited to see on camera and that's very, very real and relatable to people who went through this experience. But I've also gotten lots of feedback from people who have no connection at all to this religion. And, and really when you make a documentary, like I'm going to watch a documentary about like a beetle in Africa Mm -hmm. and I have no connection to beetles in Africa or Africa, you know, like people watch documentaries to learn something new and be exposed to a new idea or something they don't know about or something strange. So I think I also, we also um, did that successfully to, attract people who have no connection to this because I've been told by people from Europe that have no connection to this. that like, Oh yeah. Like they had some similar experience when they were a kid that had nothing to do with this religion, but something else or someone from the Philippines who like grew up in America and he felt similar, like relating to the idea of having two different communities, Mm -hmm. the American standard community or whatever that is. And then the Filipino community that he grew up in as like a subculture or co-culture in the States um, and having a dual reality. It was like, that was the thing that he got from the movie. Like, Oh wow. I didn't, I didn't really think of that connection or someone who's a Catholic. They're like, Oh my God, this is exactly how I felt. Like really Catholics, like the biggest Christian religion on the planet. And you felt similarly to these, like this small fledgling cult group. Like, yeah, because the worldview, like the religious landscape of like what is the supernatural world like and how how real or not real that is when you're in it it's like there are angels and demons and hellfire and heaven and that is affecting your day all the time just like the people in the movie and it's like oh we didn't talk about any of those topics really we talked about the doomsday end of the world and shunning and they're like yeah it's the same and i'm like wow okay so people from all different walks of life are totally resonating with this something universally Mm -hmm. human is happening that we captured in this movie. So that's been like really interesting to watch and like makes me feel like the choices we made and who we brought into the film team, um, like the producer on the movie that helped me shoot it and write a lot of it and did a lot of the question writing and asking. He's not, he's, he grew up atheist. Oh, wow. So he wanted to ask very specific questions that are like from his perspective. And the editor has, she's British and 
knows nothing about this religion. She's a novel writer. And so she did the story editing. So she and her husband did a lot of work to like curate the flow of the story mm -hmm. and pulling those questions. Like most people, like it's actually, I, and I'm, and I'm like, from most people's perspective, not a real witness, right? Um, technically I'm not, I mean, technically whatever, I'm not in the religion and I don't believe any of it, but technically by their perspective, I'm still an active, I'm, I'm an inactive member mm. <laughs> uh, to be really technical about it. <laughs> but like they have three people that have like different, they're not, none of us are true members, but like, or had no connection. But we told a story that about them that is, first of all, very honest, um, incredibly compelling from a music and emotional perspective, and um, it has a universal appeal to humanity from all walks of life, even though it's a bunch of white folks in Minnesota <laughs> making making indie rock, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, even the shunning, even the shunning alone, that that's something that's going to be relatable because uh, we all have family, we have loved ones, we have people that we're close to, and to to have the idea or the thought play out to where just imagine yourself now being totally exed from communication, you're you're just as if you didn't exist anymore. I mean, that that's going to hit a, a personal spot. I think for like you said, it's there's some something universal yeah. about it, and I think right there, that's a big component. Yeah, I'm really excited too because it's like I made a film in Vietnam about music, but it was very like light it's like here's some musicians making music and here's the people that run the venue it's very light but like in fun to watch like have a drink smoke a joint or whatever and watch it but like but this is like this is a bit heavier way heavier way more personal and um but it still has a music component it's like we take the soundtrack is two and a half hours long the film's 80 oh, minutes wow um, okay <laughs> and and the official cd soundtrack is 80 minutes but like there's a lot of music and a lot of musical journey. And we take you through a over a period of 20, it's like 27 years throughout the documentary from like their youth in the religion as musicians, the concerts that they threw the, the Jehovah's witness, like community music festival. Um, they had, that was a pulling people from multiple States. There's a connection to Chicago. Like half the people in the movie married people from the Chicago Jehovah's witness music scene. And then like the shunning and demonstrating that, and then one thing that I've never seen in a movie before on the topic, there are movies on this topic, there are documentaries that talk about shunning, but they often focus on the religion and they focus on the trauma, but then that's it. Like there's not like a resolution mm -hmm. um, and it's hard to hit all the, hit all the notes, but I wanted to hit new notes. And the, the new thing I wanted to hit was like, well, what happened to these people after all of that? Yeah. And there's this sort of like, it gets better. Like, Oh, there's also another huge problem we haven't talked about at all, which is in Jehovah's Witness suicides and ex-Jehovah's Witness suicides because of the turmoil of this. I could only imagine. I mean, especially if you're talking about a doomsday to where you're feeling like I'm not good enough anyways. What's the next solution or what your uh, it's a catch 22? Yeah. And I have a, one of my early interviews was with this ballet dancer, ballet instructor, Miranda Noonan. She talks about how her mom, when she when she left like decided she didn't realize she didn't believe it and told her mom, I don't believe all of this. I think it's wrong. I think there's a lot of lies here. The mom was like, why don't you just go kill yourself? Then you'd be better off. No way. The mom to her daughter. That's like day one. Like you should just go kill yourself because God's going to do it anyways. And at least if you do it yourself, there might be a chance <sighs> you'll get resurrected into the paradise. It's like, yo, to your own child. Wow. It's so dark. So that that's what they and how many they, have taken that and, oh, and actually yeah. you know they they played that out in real life exactly they encourage it this religion encourages people to kill themselves 
because I mean, they don't actively as a religion, but like this happens so often. Um, individually like, okay, there's, I'm afraid to put my own family member since day one of relieving. I'm afraid to put them down as an emergency contact because they have rules um, within their religion that if I were to be in a serious accident and I needed specific medical care that the religion bans, they would not let me get the medical care. They'd rather see me die. And they'd probably rather see me die in general because for them, the selfishly get to see me in the paradise. Because if I die, there's a chance God will resurrect me. But if Jesus kills me during the genocide, there's that's it. Like if God or his people, his angels or Jesus kills you, like you'll never be brought back. So they actually, if they're really taking the religion seriously and believing it all, that's one of their beliefs that like if you die now, it's better. So die sooner than them. They want to know that you die. They want to experience your death before God does it. Wow. Anyway, so that's insane. Yeah. That yeah, these these type of things right here to to hear it, and I'm sure other people that that like I said, they're maybe being introduced to this for the very first time. That is some shocking. That's like a that's a shaker right there. I mean, to have that. And it's it's natural, not natural, but it's it's normalized in this cult. That's crazy. So we wanted to put like a because it's so heavy. We wanted to yeah, put a big breath of fresh air at the end of the movie. That's like, what had happened to these five people that we just got to know in such a deep way over such a long period of time after all of that mess? And we show that in the last you know, set, last chapter of the film. As a sort of like, we get to know what happened, what their lives are like. We see them kind of rising as musicians. Like once they get out, they made like twice as much music, and the quality of music was based on that. You know, they had mm-hmm. their ten thousand hours in to use a Malcolm Gladwell ism. They were in the flow. Yeah, and they were like, and they had something to say, and they had no filter anymore. They didn't have to code their language anymore. They didn't have to tiptoe around what people would think or say about their music. They're like, hey, we can say anything. This situation is fucked. Like we're gonna sing about yeah. it. And we've, and they're creating their own beliefs and like exploring new belief systems and new ideas and talking and singing about that. And like, they all put up so many albums, we call them like exit trilogies. Like there's a, the one you, the album you make just before you leave the album that you make right after getting cut off from everyone, you know, and the album you make as you sort of like land on the outside. And so the film sort of like at the, the last chapter is like, well, whoa, what did they do with music? Um, after they left, whoa, they like, they rise as rock stars. And so you mentioned that before, but not everyone's a rock star. We have Carpenters too. And it's like, we also have rock stars. So check out the film and like, and celebrate with them. <laughs> That's right. I like, I like that you leave on that note, because like you said, there's some documentaries, there's some stories where they, there's no solution. There's no life afterwards. And that's really what, what this podcast is also about. Now, what do you think is uh, cool. like one of the big hurdles for people who separate themselves they're physically out they're mentally out they're turning over that new leaf and then now it's like i gotta push in a whole new direction and and be a part of or build in this world that i was always taught was against me you know what do you think is one of those uh, a big hurdle for people that are in that situation that's a great question i think it's it's not just this religion or this situation it's like a universal human thing Mm -hmm. it gets brought up a lot in different podcasts and shows and communities in this space about like, what do you do with friendship? Like, how do you find a real friend after going through something like this? And one thing I've been thinking about lately, like my solution that's, I, and it's not just me, but like one thing that I've done and I've found very helpful is change your um, community, change your location is the hack. So if you can't go to another country 
or so your environment changes yeah, or a new city go to the next town over and rent an apartment there and get a similar job there if that's your only option because you have kids or something um there's a way to do it or even just like stay in a different side of town and do stuff there like as purposefully change your environment um in in some way that you can um because there's things that'll trigger you things will remind you of the situation things that will like bring back bad memories or put you in front of people that you don't that are unhealthy for you to have in your life, perhaps active members of a thing or a group that you were a part of, but it's, it's not easy. And, and one perspective I've found is like, yeah, I've gone to live in other countries and the term is thrown around expat, but really I'm like an immigrant, right? Like I'm, I'm trying to find a new life in a new place. And mm -hmm. I like to bounce around a little bit. Not everyone has that luxury or the freedom to do that by obligations or family uh, or something or even monetary reasons. But this, the idea of like a similar situation as a refugee, someone who is thrust out of where they, they were comfortable into a place where they're not comfortable anymore and they don't know people, they don't have community. But like, it's one thing to be a refugee and just sort of feel stuck and traumatized. And, and I'm not saying it's easy to undo that, but to like see it as an opportunity. Like now you're in a new place and you can build anything, mm -hmm. you can start over. And that's an amazing situation to be in. Everything is possible. And there's a lot of um, excitement and, and also unknowns that are difficult to handle because there's so many new things all at once. But if you can like change the mentality of it, like, okay, you don't have that thing anymore that you were comfortable, where you were comfortable. Like we were like addicted to comfort as a human species. Um, but okay, you're in an uncomfortable situation. Well, it's an opportunity to, to try and create a new situation, a better life. Like there will always be changes. That's like the one normal thing the constant is that there's always going to be change so like you can it's a mental it's a mental framework perspective thing like you now have an opportunity to create a better life right now and you have to work for it but it's going to be good and i think that's something that even if you're in a normal situation that's where right. everything's pretty okay you can also do this and it's also healthy it just it takes work and time but it's a healthy perspective that this is a positive benefit that's going to be interesting and you're going to get something out of it that's healthy for you like go create the life you want like i think it could happen every six months reinvent your situation is probably a healthy thing yeah why not that's right reinventing yourself i mean we're always evolving that's the way things are the seasons change life changes with it and um you you can also take that and and embrace it life is evolving and you can evolve with it yeah i love that that that's something that that is i've heard Plenty times, and I believe that also. I, I I really I really think that's a that's a sound way to put it. Is change your environment. Um, I, I've even heard stories of some people because of uh, just the tie and the connection, especially when you're living in close proximity to something like that. That they just would get in the car and still drive over and pass by the church, and you know, there's all these. If you're not being reminded just on a whim, you're sometimes, if you're, especially if you're still so close to it, you're willfully going out of your way to just to go down memory lane or to yeah. have a, have a, you still have a tie to it's it. It's probably not healthy. Exactly. <laughs> like break the ties. They're breaking them. Might as well, might as well start fresh. Like a get, forget about the past and move on. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Move forward, create your, your new tomorrow and um, yeah. Embrace the change. Do you see, yeah. or do you know of I know Scientology, they're kind of infamous with it. Like, say, once you exclude yourself, but it seems like they ostracize you and they want nothing to do with you, but they're not out there harassing you or... The Jehovah's Witnesses? Yeah, there you go. The Jehovah's Witnesses. You're not getting anything like that, are you? Bullying? Oh, no, they do that. 
No, they no, they definitely do that in a big way, especially when you first get out. Like the first months, especially, and then uh, into like the first year or two, if you stay local, if you're in the area, those same people will keep on coming after you, showing up at your house, at your work, do they? Checking in on you. I mean, they have a book on every single address. Anyone who's ever been nice to them, they have a book in their bags that they carry from door to door, and they write down notes about these people. When do they work? Where do they work? What are their hours of what, how many kids do they have? How old are their kids? What are their kids like? Like it's like privacy invasiveness next level. And if someone that was a member, whether you left or were kicked out or just stopped going, they they will keep on, especially the elders will keep on or like people that liked you, but like actually had a genuine relationship or a, a affinity with you. They will use the weird religious tactics to like keep you in the loop and try to guilt you into coming back to, to God in their mind, coming back to their weird group, their dangerous controlling group. Huh. Yeah. It's, it's not healthy, especially that first year is like really hard in that way. Lots of pressure, but they, they're not violent. Um, so that's like mostly, I mean, there's, there's like a, mm -hmm. a mass murder every six months. There's one in Hamburg. So if you're German listeners this year in March, um, wow. a guy got kicked out of the religion and went back to church that week or two weeks later and murdered like eight people, including a pregnant woman. So like that, and there was a bombing oh, in Kerala, wow. India a couple months, like two months ago where a bunch of people were killed. So like, usually it's like someone who just got kicked out and they felt terrible about the situation or felt wronged in a deep way for having to be treated this way and being ostracized. And so then they take it out on someone. I mean, it's like they you know, go hundred thousand people a year. You get like one of those a year. One in a hundred thousand. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, they kind of bring it in on themselves. Honestly, I mean, I'm not advocating for violence, but they're doing terrible, terrible things to these people, including me. And there's obviously a reaction. My reaction was, oh yeah, I'm not going to say anything for years. And then it was like, wait a minute, the power of filmmaking. I could say something that could last decades. I'm going to do that. That's right. I've lost my entire family of 17 members. I'm going to let the world know how dangerous and dark this death cult is. It's time they know. This is your talent. This is something that is uh, inside of you, and you're using this for a greater cause. And, and you've connected with, it seems, a, a lot of people who, like you said, they have their own experience. And, and not just people from the outside watching this documentary, they, they don't have to be tied up with the religion or have a history with it, but that universal basic human level that there's some kind of connection and there's something that's resonating with everybody that, that, uh, that came across it. When, when do you, do you have a plan date when it should be released like for, for the public and everybody to be able to, um, check this out? So we will be putting it out to get quality control through a platform that allows us to distribute it on, on probably Tubi is the first target as a streaming platform with ads. So it's free to watch for the user. Um, that's okay. the first place. And so that'll probably end up being in the first couple months of next year will be the first availability in a general sense. Um, it is available if you go now to witnessunderground.com and you can, you can pay to watch it. Mm -hmm. And, and a long, it's not a good long-term goal. That's a goal. If you want to watch right now, we'll, and I, I mentioned you offline, um, I'll give everyone who listens to this a 50% off code. So you can, mm -hmm. you'll have a special link you can give to your guests in the show notes. Right on. So it's $10 right now. So it'll be a $5 link. Um, it's not a long-term solution because a paywall alienates people from 99% of people aren't going to do that. Um, and they have other options and many other media to watch. So we totally get that. And that's why we did the Kickstarter and we're trying to get it out in the world in a big way as a standard piece of media. And it's a big thing I've learned how to do. So if anybody, anybody has a film and they want to figure out how to do this uh, from a fully indie way or, or a more traditional way, I, I've 
gone through the ropes for the last few years, um, I can help give some advice. I'm open. I'm an open door when it comes to that kind of knowledge as a director. I feel like I owe that to the world. And, uh, but yeah, it'll be available probably in a couple months in a, in a general way with a free option. And you condensed, this is 27 years. You said like just a broad time for 27 years and, and you condensed that into a couple of hours, 80 minutes, yeah. 80 minutes. My goodness. That was some doing. <laughs> yeah. And it flows really nice. It has some nice moments and good revelations and emotional ups and downs and, People are pretty pretty happy with it. The most reviews I get on an emotional level are like, oh my God, I cried. I haven't done that. I've never cried during a documentary before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Didn't expect that one. Yeah, I'm ready for it. And you also have, because I, I came across a short, I guess it was a trailer, because you said you also had a series going on on YouTube. That's right. Yeah, we have a YouTube channel by the same name, Witness Underground. So it's youtube.com forward slash at symbol Witness Underground. Um, so if you search there, you'll see the XJW coming out. XJW is three letters. XJW coming out um, series. And that is, I have a lot more episodes to go with that. So we have our second season is all on YouTube, first and second season. Also, what came out of making the movie was like, well, how do you market a movie? I don't know. I've always wanted to do a podcast. How about we start a podcast? Mm-hmm. And so Ryan, the main guy in the movie, like it's like director and subject. We became like super pals and started making content on the topic. And we, the film really dives into his story deeply and, and another woman in the movie. Okay. And the podcast is started out with Ryan and I co-hosting, interviewing other artists who have also left this religion. And so with the witness underground podcast is, is the modern living, breathing vehicle of the witness underground project which is who else had a story like this? I bet there's more than one. Um, there's millions of people who have left this religion. Are there any artists? And wow, there are so many artists and musicians and um, they're amazing. I'm so impressed. So like, it's, it's almost like a genre, even though like genre usually has like an emotional feeling or like, mm-hmm. oh, it's, it's reggae. So it has a very reggae vibe or something. Um, you, you know when it's reggae because it sounds like reggae. Yeah. But this is like post, post-cult music. Um, so it crosses many genres. So like in the film, we have psychedelic rock, indie rock shoegaze riot girl like some punk some um electronica and all kinds of stuff with lyrics some instrumental and um in the post you know in the witness underground podcast it's also all over the place also got some psychedelic rock some like 90s style indie rock um there's like some i'm not a country fan but there's a woman who's like some country and then some like singer songwriter folk stuff out of canada um, some bluegrass everything huh <laughs> yeah a little of everything and it's fun and so but everyone, the theme is the same which is like hey i got out of this really difficult situation and now i've i'm writing about those relationships and and forging a new life and building something new with like my inspired new philosophy like oh wow okay so lyrically it's like a, a new genre music right. it's all over the place i wonder if if you guys ever plan on something maybe in the future to where you throw a concert all these these bands get together and they just rock out i'm all about it actually and in the film we actually talk about a concert that um the main characters were planning before the the end of the community and it was called my adventure flowerland and there's actually another that was they have a, a rock concert that was a yearly annual concert in minneapolis called um october ridge based on where the place was where they did it and then there's one in Chicago called Amazing Fruit that was in the religion. Mm-hmm. And so this other one, Amazing my Fruit, huh? Yeah. Amazing Fruit in I Chicago. Like that. 
And I went to some of their concerts in Chicago too. Like I was in Wisconsin. So I was like between the two worlds. So I was like, and I was in my own band. So I was like, oh, there's Jehovah's Witness stuff happening all over Wisconsin, but also in a big way in these two cities. But yeah, like this idea of doing a concert's really fun. And after working with artists on such a grand level for so many years of my life, I'm probably the most capable of organizing something, but it takes a lot of people to run a concert. So especially the musicians need to be like taken care of and like there needs to be an incentive and there needs to be an audience. And that's the thing. Most musicians are always like, do you have an audience at your bar? Am I going to be playing for three people or are you going to advertise? And so like, how do you connect an audience to a cult Mm -hmm. post cult member? So if if you want to get involved, uh, if anyone out there hears this, they want to get involved and throwing together a concert. I know all the artists um, would love to figure out how to like market a ex cult member <laughs> um, ticket sales. That could be interesting. Yeah, that but would it'd be, be new. Cool you know, like the world doesn't really have this yet. So if you want to make something new, yeah, off the top of my head, I cannot think of anything like that being done before. That is something that's a fresh idea and pretty yeah. new. But yeah, like you said, that's the tricky part is uh, promoting it and, and marketing it to a, a wider, yeah. wider uh, audience and getting people to come out for it. Because like you can get people to come out to uh, what's the funny the big one in uh, Tomorrowland in Netherlands like mm-hmm. you get a hundred thousand people come to that you'll sell it out for five hundred dollars a person <sighs> it's crazy if people to go to see DJs but like that music's like has a vibe it's known modern positive fun house music that you can like drop acid to or MDMA people mm-hmm. go crazy for that <laughs> I'm not sure you'd have the same response to like oh people that were traumatized are going to sing about it <laughs> right um, yeah so it's a struggle I love the idea I want to throw a concert mm-hmm. I think it's a great idea and it's really inspiring to think about it but I would love to hear from um, promoters out there who have gone who know how to promote a sh- uh, concert to flesh it out uh, one day yeah. maybe in the future who knows great idea though like I said, I'm I'm fairly new to, I've known about Jehovah's Witness since I was a kid. They do on Saturdays, they hit your door. And um, also outside of the grocery stores, they're passing out the Watchtower magazines. But it seems like nowadays, I mean, is it safe to say, I don't know if you know this personally, but are their numbers declining? They've got to be. Oh, it's a great question. Yeah, they they report, they used to do an annual report for like 70 years, 50 years, something. So every year it'd be like this whole thing in the summer at their yearly convention you have to go to where they would say like, hey, we announced the, the report and here's some positive news. Some of the, the peak numbers we've got in certain countries around the world and they're in every country in the world. I don't see them here. But Europe over the last five years has been really stagnant and they, they actually just did something two months ago where they no longer require you to go preaching by hours they used to force you to report your hours of how many hours you preach per month and if you if you drop by a certain level they take you off they drop you down the hierarchy because you haven't been keeping up your um your regularity mm-hmm. and you can rise in regularity by like putting high, huge amount of hours in like 50 70 hours a month they have a whole category for that and you get special access and privileges for that um special respect gets given to you anyway so they they basically stopped their global preaching work they still make you give a piece of report that has a checkbox like I did it at least once this month. Mm. So it's like it's they still kind of want you to do it, but now they don't even want you to go door to door. They don't seem to care about that. They care more about it's like an integrity system. Take, yeah, you can say right. you did it, but you didn't. Did you really do it? Right. And I think the reason why that is is because they don't actually get many people from that. They get people from manipulating people when they're traumatized from like oh someone you love just died. 
perfect. We've been waiting for this moment to happen. Let's talk about oh, hooking you okay. right now. You know that you can see the person who just died again, and we're the only people who can get you there. You can see them in a paradise. What's paradise? Well, we have this, our religion preaches immortality. You can get to see and we'll bring back people with a resurrection to life on earth forever. Getting people that way is, is what's really effective and how they hook people in. Getting people knocking on doors and pissing them off on a Saturday morning hasn't been that effective. The only thing that that works well for is what we talked about earlier, which is the um, persecution complex. So like you put yourself in a situation where people are mistreating you or not being nice to you. Mm -hmm. And then you go back to your group and everyone's like patting you on the back for going through it with them. Like you went through the trenches and war with them, you know, like someone slammed the door on you and said something mean to you or like pointed a gun at you or like made fun of you in public come back and talk to your people. And yeah, we all have a story like that. It's okay. Yeah, I know what you're going through. So that's what it's really for and how it's used. It's not really to get new converts. They only, it's like really, really random. Once, once in every few years, you might meet someone who actually just had someone die and you really hook them with the emotional trauma of like mm. promising them, promising to see their dead loved one again. That's great that you said that because that was something also I was going to ask you uh um, was what do you think is enticing or alluring to somebody that their first time encountering this this uh, doctrine and this belief system? Because it seems like you, either that, like what you said, that's a that's a real good point that you made, or um, you have people that were just they were born into it, you know, and that's something that all that's all they knew, and so they became accustomed to it only because this is something that was normalized and conditioned into their way of life. But uh, somebody who's an, an adult already and coming across it for the first time, I guess, like you said, that could be something that is uh, worth chewing on a little bit and entertaining more is the fact that, oh my, they're vulnerable. And I'd love to think that I can see my my wife or my husband dearly departed after, you know, I leave this place. So yeah, that's the big hook. They talk about that mostly just that. That's like their daily thing. It's like the end of the world is coming is one thing, but that's abstract. They talk about bad news all the time. They repeat bad news, negative news, war. They try to attach that to prophecy in the Bible. And so that makes them seem intellectual and relevant. And then the end of the world's coming. So like, what, how are you going to survive that is a topic. But basically it's like, you're just going to think about the future and that you're going to be able to live forever. And if you do die, it's okay because like God will bring you back. He'll remember you and you'll be living on earth forever. So like those are their, their main topic, mm. talking points and their main hooks and their main selling is, is immortality on earth. And if you die, it's, you'll, you also get to have that. And pain yeah. is just a temporary experience. They don't do any charity work. They don't help you out if you're struggling. Um, they've never given any money from the headquarters to any individuals as members, like no one's ever gotten medical care or help. No financial support, anything. Zero. They've never helped the greater community outside of their own community. If they do like go to a disaster area, like a flood in Louisiana during Katrina, they went there and yeah, made a Katrina. big deal in the news about how Jehovah's Witnesses are coming down and spending so much money to help out. But really they only built new churches and they might've helped some individual members like repair their houses. And that was it. No one, no one from the greater community, just their own members, active members. No, definitely not someone who hasn't been going to church recently. Definitely not someone who left the religion. Only the people who are actively going. So yeah, they're, and then they, they spin that into like a news article and the news picks it up and they show like good positive oh, spin. Oh yeah, spotlight yeah. rangers. They do a ton of that. <laughs> now that you, you have some time away from it, you said 15 years or so that you've been, you've been outside of that, that way of life and just that umbrella. But have you 
since then hooked up with people that you personally personally knew that were Jehovah's Witness and they've also separated themselves? Yeah, actually. Reunions and reuniting yeah. after, you know, years of silence or being ostracized or being an apostate. <laughs> Isn't that what they call people? Right. That are... Yeah. I'm according to them, I'm an apostate. I'm according to the dictionary, I'm also an apostate, which just means you no I'm longer believer. believe what you were taught as a child. Mm -hmm like the faith of your parents or your community. Um, I definitely don't believe it. The spell has yeah, been broken. Kind of and it feels great. Like, I mean, yeah, it's weird to be, have been a cult member. It's also weird to have, to be an ex cult member, but like also I, I successfully navigated cult mind control. What have you done? <laughs> I like to frame it that way. <laughs> yes. Um, well, you yes. might get sucked into a cult and not know it. <laughs> and are you going to get out of it? Or are you going to be one of the mm. few that gets out? Like I got out. I, I can see through the bullshit of the government and other nefarious religious That's groups. Right. I can see through the, the, the nonsense of their religious spiritual guru um, doing the yoga instruction down the street from you. I, I can see what they're doing. I've seen the patterns. I can see <laughs> the in-group language and the in-group grooming clothing requirements and norms and um, the... Um, narcissistic abuse tactics to get you to conform to something. I, I see it all over the place. And it's not just Jehovah's Witnesses. It's all through society. It's humans. It's humans and people in a power struggle wanting to maintain control, dominate control, get access to more sex, get access to more money, more power, uh, control over other human beings, get them to do what you want as like mental slaves. It's happening all over the place. It happens in work. It's, it's, a, it's a pattern. And a part of me is like, yeah, this is hard to go through, but also I have a huge leg up on society because these these nefarious um, control tactics are all over the place. Mm -hmm. You might not see them, but they're happening. And you, you, most people that I can, I've pointed things out to people. I'm like, hey, as a friend, like I want you to see what this thing is that you're you're doing, not you're doing, but like that you're a part of this thing where these other people are doing this thing, and I can see what they're doing, mm -hmm. and you're a part of that thing. And they're like, no, 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 he's a good person. It's like. If they were a good person, they wouldn't be doing Cognitive that. dissonance. Yeah. They, they, for them, it's like it's simple and, and clean and they're just obedient because they, they choose to be. And like, no, you were coerced into that. That was an unhealthy situation. Um, and and you, you brought it up. And so I'm pointing it out why. And you're like, no, no, no. I think I'm in control. I'm like they want you to think you're in control. God damn it. No one will ever get this unless they live through it. And so it's so like I'm, I'm a bit struggling because like I do meet people and and they don't see it. And I can see it as clear as day a mile away. And uh, anyway, at least I'm, I feel great, though, that I have like this skill set and I can see danger from far away. And I am a little bit skeptical and a little bit um, untrusting, but I also have a really, really good reason. And my my spider senses are are very active. <laughs> That's right. Uh, because Use I went the force. Something. Yeah, I have the force. <laughs> I have access. <laughs> So it's safe to say you've been enjoying your life and living your life, uh, embracing life since you've been away. And, and you've um, you've involved yourself in a whole lot of things, a lot of creative avenues you've been exploring and entertaining. And man, that that's that's a beautiful thing to hear. I, I love the fact that you are especially connecting with so many people, bringing everybody together and, and giving them a voice and and um just spreading the message because like the only way that awareness can come is if 
people bring awareness. You know, some people, they can keep it to themselves and just carry on with their life, say, once they separate from anything that was uh, traumatic or something that was toxic. But to uh, also speak about it, I think, is is very encouraging to people that have came from a place like that. They find themselves stuck in a place like that. It's good that there are people that choose to, after time, like you said, there was a time, of course, I, I don't want to speak about it, don't want to talk about it. Let me just be, let's live and let live. But then there comes a time and a place where you're like, you know what, I, I'm, I'm a bit upset or, you know, I'm a bit angry. I, I lost a lot of things on account of this. So it's only right that, you know, I, I voice my mm-hmm. concerns. Yeah. No, I think that's all of accurate sum- summaration. Also, one of my things is like, well, they have a TV show and they've, they're forcing my own family members to go talk about their way of seeing the world. I'm going to do that. I'm going to keep, actually, I'm going to do it in a way that's really honest, intellectually honest and from a place of love, but I'm going to do it as well because I have to, to fight what they're doing as like, they can put their ideas in the world. Why can't I? Their ideas all conform to their religion because they're coerced mm-hmm. and they can't have their own voice. I almost even more for that reason need to speak up because like I have people that I love who are trapped in this thing that are coerced and blinded and and have to go announce bad ideas to the world and affect people for the worse and they can't see it. Like I, I feel like I'm obligated. And also I had a pretty light experience with the religion. The shunning is real and I think that's pretty universal. I also have a... a an experience where I wasn't a born in full on believer my whole life. And totally the trauma is like too much to handle of like losing not only everyone, but also your entire worldview. I was a pretty skeptical child and I was like having forming my own beliefs and had a lot of like great diversity influences throughout my life. So I'm probably well positioned to be a person to have the emotional strength, but maybe not the strength, but like I'm not as deeply hurt by the tragedy of having your worldview swept away as someone who was like a full believer, mm-hmm. a fully indoctrinated member. And so like, I'm almost more equipped. being pulled from under them. Yeah, exactly. Right. There's a lot of people out there that are just like, this is, this is too huge. Like I'm not talking about it. I can't, right. I've been in therapy for 40 years and I still can't talk about it. And I'm like, Oh, this is fun for me. <laughs> what other, what other, what other cult members are out there? Like, I'm having a great time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You had a, a, a wild ride and especially living overseas Okay, you were in Vietnam for how long? Five years? Five years. I loved it. I highly recommend it. I highly recommend like taking, going to the farthest place in the world you can think of that you won't be comfortable <laughs> and like going and getting an apartment. It sounds- It teaches yourself yeah, a lot of yeah, things. It sounds crazy, but like it's actually, people are the same everywhere in a lot of ways as well. Like they're humans. There's restaurants and bathrooms and public transport and like streets, like in apartments and like all the things you need in an apartment. You can also, they're also, it's like a lot of, all the normal stuff is there. It's just like, you don't know anyone the language is difficult. And there's an immense amount of challenges and cultural differences that you'll, you'll never know until you're in it and it'll, it won't be comfortable, but like you grow in such a huge way that it's like, you can, I don't know. I never want to go back. Like going back to the States for me, it'll probably happen at some point, but I'm just sort of like, ah, there's just, I know the world. How long has it been? How long has it been since you, you've, uh, went back to the this States. is my eighth year abroad but it's over eighth year straight no no, no break no, 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 you no. haven't no visiting or no no, no. I, wow. it's eight total years in my life so i started when i was 25 and i had like 
six months here and then like a couple of years in the States and then a year here. And then Vietnam was the longest one. But even during that time, I was taking a couple, I had some work opportunities come up. It's like every year, except for one year, I was back in the States for a couple of months. So you were doing everything uh, digital, right? Kind of like a digital nomad. With- yeah. Yeah. Before that term was common. Yeah. I was doing digital nomad work and, um, and then I had some in-person jobs that that came that brought me back to the states for engineering. So I, I ended up picking up engineering during the last recession. I went back to school. Okay. And um, so I got some like serious tech STEM education, and so I do electronics design as a thing that pays my life. Um, all right, all right. While I'm trying to make a movie and, and like stabilize stabilize myself for the podcast, um, which is not easy because there's a lot of competition. Engineering is like. I highly recommend everyone going into STEM because there's no competition. People are calling me asking me if I want a job and I'm like, nah, I'm all right. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want a job right now. They're like, that's a crazy different perspective than like, I'm trying to like, I'm trying to apply to be a barista that's right. and there's yeah. 300 applicants with a PhD and it's like, fuck, how do you, how do you live life? Like with everyone is more qualified than you in every single option that you have. Like, I did that for a long time. And that's why I went back to school. Um, but yeah, so I had some jobs coming, bringing me back to the States to do some like engineering work with aerospace and it was cool. I learned a lot and I loved it, but also I have these other passions, like the filmmaking and the podcast is like my deep passion. That's your heart right and there. Yeah. If it comes to engineering, like I'm working on a sustainable toy right now. It doesn't sound that inspiring. I worked on stuff for NASA and I put stuff on a space on the space station and I have some like spacecraft flying around somewhere um, by some oh, company. Wow. So like, that's exciting and cool, but like the fun for me and the inspiration for me is way more in the, how do we solve the planet's problems? Because it's just us and like, we have to make the world better and we're not doing that very fast and we're doing worse things faster. We're breaking things faster than we're fixing them. So like, I want to build in sustainable sustainability. It's like moving away from plastics, creating electronics that are, like you can dissolve them in water and um, they're not poisonous to the water supply for like the end of life for a system. You know, when the toy finally breaks 10 years from now, what's going to happen? It's going to go into a landfill, but what will happen to it then? It will it dissolve. Cool. That sounds great. It'll dissolve in a way that's like healthy for the environment. Like that. So like for me, I'm like, Ooh, it's just a toy. It's not that important for the planet, but people are going to keep on buying toys. It's better to have something that like turns into water. Okay. Like right. Dirt. Yeah that's healthy then, you know, so I'm inspired, inspired more on that. Um, that's more interesting to me than spacecraft. Um, but it might be a shock to someone or mm-hmm. like solving an environmental problem, um, that has to do with clean energy, for example, that that's way more interesting to me than like working on a missile or a torpedo or something. Yeah. That's all ultimately what, what does that lead to destruction? Like you said, it, we're about, um, doing things that are more sustainable to the, to the environment and also to humanity in, in whole. Yeah. I'm, I love that kind of thing. That's where I want to spend my future. So I actually, I was, I'm going through like the Kickstarter back, backer incentives and like giving out gifts and stuff for everyone that supported our project. And I was like, well, what else could I be doing next year? What about, oh, I'm going to write a book. I have like all my journals from my teenage years. I'm going to write a little memoir, but also like, I'm going to make a course on how to write a book for other people that want to write a book that want to be empowered on how to do it and DIY dis, uh, production, uh, do it publication. Yourself. Yeah. And, and then like, I want to do a, how did I make this documentary the course for people that want to make a documentary and like also have their voice? Cause like this process took me years to figure out and it was a lot of challenges. Like I would like to give that knowledge back. Are you self-taught with the documentary? Uh, for the most part. I mean, I learned from, or were you taking some classes? Though? My, my education, it's, it's one thing to say self-taught. It sounds like, you know, it's a bit of an ego thing or like, 
a challenge or like an impressive thing to say, but really what I've found is that I found a number of mentors um, throughout my life. Like I, mm-hmm. I found people that were doing it that were already making money at it and like and at a high level. And I asked them to work for them, to learn from them. And I would work for free or low cost to do that on different projects and they would hire me. And we made deals. Pick their brain a bit. It's huge. It's the acceleration, like comparing that to like going to film school, could be four or five years. Like I'm, I'm sure it's you get a great education, but even these people, they're like, I went to film school and you can learn it all from nofilmschool.com. And, or you can learn it all from like taking some small courses and like picking people's brains and like getting mentors of your own. Just hang out with me and work mm-hmm. for me and I will, I will teach you. And, and like that going that path, that's something I want to write in my book. It's like the, I mean, we're going off on a tangent here, but this is my, this is my future in my life, right? Find three mentors in a thing that you, you're passionate about and, and work with for each of them for six months or a year. Then you have a year and a half of like how to do it in a way that works right now and you can replicate it and make money today in a way and like doing the essential stuff that also and show present as a professional from day one. Like you're learning from someone who's doing it, just copy what they're doing and they're teaching you because they like value that you want, you value them and see them as someone important. Like the mentor apprentice style for me is huge and I've always loved it. And Mm -hmm. for me, that's like, that's the way to navigate the world especially today where like university education, it's a racket. Like uh, the boomer generation has turned yeah. into a for-profit business and they don't really actually care if you have a valuable knowledge or understanding when you leave. Maybe some universities are different. Or a degree, you come out and it's useless. Yeah. You can't even use it and you're in debt $200,000. Yeah. That's the norm for my generation. Everyone's in debt and they're, they're in their 40s and they can't mm-hmm. afford their first starter house because they're still paying their student loans off every month and they're buried. Like that's not a, that's not a sustainable system. That's half-life. You're at ha- your midlife yeah. crisis yes. and you still can't afford a place to live, you know, like that's the system. So we're in a situation now where all the internet, all, all the information in the planet mm-hmm. is available for free or in low cost. Like a lot of major universities, MIT has free courses. Harvard has free courses. Like you can learn so much. And even people that are, people that are experts like doing it right now have made a course for 20 bucks on, on Udemy if you, or Coursera or whatever. You can go get the education and fill in the gaps and you can work with and be mentored and like get it all in a shorter period of time for cheaper. Actually, you can get paid to learn. That's the title of the chapter. <laughs> get paid to learn. Find a mentor. Yeah, I, I love that. That's that's what I'm talking about. It was we, we went on a good ride with with this. Uh, you, you shared a lot of a lot of good nug- nuggets about everything and also the things that you're involved with right now and man i know you're you're a busy man and and i appreciate you taking time out of your day um it was a pretty quick hit you know we chatted for a bit and then and then we set something up and here we are and i was i was happy to be able to hear your story and to have you um share some of your experience and the projects that you're dealing with now uh you have any any final thoughts or anything you'd like to to share with the rest of the listeners with i think witnessunderground.com would be a great finish everything for the film and the podcast you can find there the places to watch um the podcast episodes that come out it's a it's a little bit wonky on the podcast side but our podcast is uh especially on the website right now but we have the witness underground um the channel on youtube has all the video podcasts and you can also find everywhere podcasts are um, the Witness Underground podcast as audio only. So if you're into podcasts, that's where that's at. The series is on the YouTube channel. 
when the XGW coming out series, the film, and then anything. And then we have a Patreon. So if you want to support the project, there is that option. And that's where you get a lot of extras. You learn about a lot of other former cult member music there that we don't put in the podcast or will be far future guests, hopefully someday. So the Patreon's a fun spot and we have a Discord. So like there's a whole world here. It's not just that we made a movie. It's like a whole community of people. It spans many, many countries and lots of different kinds of music and musicians and artists and graphic artists and authors are involved. It's like becoming quite a machine. It's pretty fun. Witness Underground. That's right. A machine against the machine. Yeah, exactly. Rage against the machine <laughs> through art. <laughs> there was a lot. There was a lot that you, you uh, mentioned right now. So you can share the links with me and I'll be sure to include all of that in the show notes yeah. so people can pick and choose what they'd like to set before their eyes. And I'm sure you have something for everyone. You have the music, you have the visuals. For sure, I'm definitely looking forward to checking out the documentary and the music. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, Rich. I, I really appreciate the conversation. I think you took it on a really fun journey and it brought out some inter interesting interesting topics including my, my future present world. Um, but yeah, I'm glad we met too. We met on our, a Reddit channel for podcasting guests <laughs> and hosts. And, and that was, it's a unique, I'm trying out different ways of, of finding um, different shows to get on. And I really appreciate you reaching out. And um, this is the second interview I've done through that group. And it's been great. Oh, perfect. I, like people from all over the world, people that are ready to go, people that are professional, like you've done a great job. So thank you. I like your channel. I'm going to be following and I'll share it. Thank it you. Out. Likewise. Yeah. That likewise, and um, all the best to you. Appreciate it, and um, yes, Scott, man, th thanks a lot for your time. Thanks a lot for your words, your spirit, and keep going after it, my friend. Keep going after it. Thanks, buddy. You too. Enjoy Hassan. <laughs> it's been great chatting with you, and everyone who's listening, uh, look, I look forward to hearing from you. Reach out. Witness Underground. It's available right now, and like Scott said, he was cool enough to leave a link with us, so. I'll be providing that link. You'll find it in the show notes. And by clicking on the link, it'll give you half off when streaming. That film is bringing awareness about the dangers involved with this cult. The shunning that goes on, the abuse that goes on. This is shedding a light. And all the support is going to the musicians and the creators to help get the word out there. Again, it's Witness Underground. He also has the Witness Underground podcast and the documentary series. All of that information you'll find in the show notes. Isn't it a trip? As much as Scott had his mind made up that when he left the church, when he separated himself from everything to do with Jehovah's Witness, what he wanted to do was just live his life. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. Let me just move on. But there were people put into his life and there was a commonality between him and them. And that was being Jehovah's Witness. What are the chances of that? Was it a coincidence? I'll let you be the judge. But for Scott, it meant something. And he heeded the call. He came out of the swamp like Luke Skywalker. He was trained to be an activist. And so he took that, leaned into it, and began to use his creativity and the connections that he had with all these people who had something in common, escaping a cult. He involved himself in what makes him happy, something he enjoys doing, music, documenting, filmmaking, and also the bigger cause, which is bringing awareness and talking about the dangers of this cult, but also highlighting artists and musicians that have left the church 
giving hope to people who may have just left. They're still on the fence or they may even be afraid of leaving and pushing out into the unknown. You're not alone. So I think it's a beautiful thing that he has going on over there, highlighting the, the musicians and bringing awareness to the dangers of his cults. He came out of the swamps with something to share. So anybody else who may be alone right now or feeling like they have no one because maybe they left the church or they left the situation. Scott, you're doing a good deed. Keep on rocking. You are a giant amongst us. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. We're all sharing in this experience together. When it's up, we're riding high and we think nothing can go wrong. And when we're down, it feels like shh, it's never going to get any better. Remember, you're worth it and you can better your situation. You guys, it's been great. I'm going to check back with you all before the end of the year. By the time you guys hear this, it'll be Christmas or the day before. So I want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Be safe out there. Spend some time with your loved ones. Enjoy that time more than anything, more than getting a big screen TV or a brand new car or a laptop, whatever it is. More than that, enjoy the presence. Presents, not presents, as in gifts but the presence of those you love. Whoever it is, wherever they are, just be thankful for having them in your life. We never know when we'll lose it. I'll be sure to check back before we top off the new year. If you guys enjoyed the show, you can visit giantsamongstus.com. There's a lot of different stories. There's a lot of different experiences. This isn't a one size fits all, but maybe something in what someone else has been through and what someone else is saying can help you on your path. That's all. We're not saying we have the answers and nobody here is perfect. It's still a work in progress. If you find value in it, or if you think somebody you know might find value or appreciate the show, share it with them. You guys be safe, be well, and be cool. And if you would like to be a part of the show and share your story, or even the story of someone in your life that has impacted you in a positive way, you can always reach out to me via email. I'd be happy to connect. Until next time, and very soon. Peace. Looking for a sign to know I'm on the right road. Ain't seen no sign since.